0: On 20th and 21st of October, 2023, the London School of Economics' Failing United States Centre held the conference, The Future of Capitalism in an Age of Insecurity. On Saturday, the 21st of October, the third conference panel of the day was Global Governance in an Era of Anti-Globalism. This panel featured Professor G. John Eikenberry of Princeton University, Professor David Luke of the LSE Firoz Lalji Institute for Africa, and Professor Nita Rudra of Georgetown University. The panel was chaired by Professor Leslie Vinjamiri of Chatham House and SOAS University of London.
1: I was initially a student at the LSE in the early 1990s. I've come and gone quite a lot in various capacities. And it is my privilege, and I mean that in a really very sincere way, not only to be on this panel with, with three tremendous scholars and at the conference, but to be part of What Peter Trubowitz has um, created, founded, led for, I don't even know how many years, but it's been so significant that it seems like it's been here forever. But I can tell you from my own personal experience that it definitely hasn't. Uh, Any American who's a longtime resident in London knows that, you know, despite the the strength of the U.S.-U.K. relationship, um, the knowledge of the U.S. is both deep and historical and also very weak and and Peter Trubowitz has done a tremendous service uh, for scholarship for think tankers for people for public intellectualism by really bringing rigor to our understanding of the U.S. and its role in the world but also by bringing Americans at the highest levels uh, to the London School of Economics and I love what Larry Kramer said about London as a home for internationalism and scholarship So thank you, Peter, and thank you for allowing me to be part of your enterprise. It is a joy. Um, We have a tremendous panel, Global Governance in an Era of Anti-Globalism. It certainly feels like global governance is uh, at risk of fracturing. It feels like the multilaterals, uh, some are stuck. We saw only four days ago in the face of extreme violence that risks escalating and widening in ways that could impact all of us. Um, We saw the UN Security Council fail twice to pass a resolution, not least at the hands of the United States that rejected the resolution and the United Kingdom that abstained alongside Russia, strange bedfellows in today's world. Um, a world trade organization that's been stuck, a number of uh, Bretton Woods institutions that, you know, aren't aren't lost, but certainly aren't delivering on questions of climate and poverty, um, and a lot of plurilateral institutions across Asia and the rest of the world that might potentially be an alternative. And that's a good, but also potentially a problematic thing, if you believe in universalism. And so to that end, let me uh, announce our three speakers very briefly. They're all very well known to you, but certainly maybe we'll start with what I, who I think is the most universalist, um, John Eikenberry, who who is really one of the world's leading thinkers and scholars, um, as we all know, on liberal international relations theory. Uh, John is Albert. This is where I get very nervous that I get the titles wrong. <laughs> um, John is Albert G. Milbank Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. He's written eight books. Most recently, A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism, and the Crises of Global Order. Um, David Luke, Professor of Practice and Strategic Director of the Feroz-Lalji Institute for Africa here at the London School of Economics, thanks to your good self. Um, David is most well known for being a SOAS PhD, I had to say that, (laughs) as well as a graduate of the LSE. He writes extensively on trade, his recent book, How Africa Trades. I was very taken by your recent article on the implications of Europe, Europe's effort to have a climate tax and what that's going to do to Africa and its exports. Uh, but you have have a deep experience and practice at the African Union, at the UNDP, at the UN Economic Commission for Africa. Um, and so you are not only known in the world of academia and the LSE, you've been an academic in Canada, but in the world of practice at the highest levels, especially in Africa. Thank you. Um, and Nita Rudra, professor at Georgetown University, who writes on the distributional consequences of globalization, the unequal benefits, your book, Democracies in Peril, Taxation and Redistribution. And globalizing economies couldn't be more apt and more relevant for today's problem. So uh, we have a great panel and we have a great audience. Um, John, over to you. Thank you, Leslie.
2: It's great to be here. And Peter, just what a wonderful occasion and uh, just great to be here and to see your center thrive. So thank you very much. And uh, to all of you as well after lunch. So here we are. And, um, well, we are at, asking a pretty weighty question, we're beginning with the observation that the, the Western-led a liberal uh, capitalist order is troubled, probably in crisis. The demand for governance, as Leslie said, has been growing. The issues that we want to govern, so to speak, is growing. The supply of governance seems to be declining. Uh, we seem to be at a, a kind of world historical moment where uh, we can imagine many different futures. Uh, a kind of the range of, of future orders from real order to disorder seems to be as great uh, uh, in the world imagination as any time, certainly in my lifetime. Basic questions are being asked uh, What is the basis for stable, peaceful, prosperous order? Fundamental basic questions. Can democracies make a, a comeback? Um, can US, China, uh, find uh, terms for uh, coexistence and find a way to um, uh, grapple with these 21st century problems that require both of them to be around the table. And what is the future, and this is my question, the future of liberal internationalism, the cooperative uh, organization of the international order uh, driven by liberal democracies, uh, committed to a kind of multilateral system, uh, where will the next uh, generation of multilateralism come from? Who will be the, the grand thinkers, the visionaries? Uh, I sometimes ask the question, who will be the next Sumner Wells? People say, well, who is that? Well, he was FDR's great multilateral thinker. He didn't get the Nobel Prize, that was Cordell Hull for, for GATT, uh, but uh, uh, he did have the ideas. And so the question is, where, does, where are the green shoots? Where is the next multilateral uh, system going to come from? So let me ask uh, ask those questions and, and make four arguments. Uh, one argument that I'll start with is that the Ukraine war and more generally the rise of U.S.-China rivalries have shattered the world. Uh, they've illuminated and, to some extent, uh, triggered a new global debates about rules and institutions. Uh, brought these first-order questions back uh, on to the table. You would have thought that the uh, Ukraine war might have united the world. Uh, uh, After all, it's a UN charter moment, Uh, but it didn't. It it really pushed, uh, for various reasons that we all know, countries into their corners. And here I would uh, make the point that uh, we are now watching a kind of reshuffling of world politics, a kind of realignments, new coalitions, new groupings, a kind of struggle for where will be the various. Uh, uh, pieces and how will they array themselves, and where will the partnerships and the alignments come from? And in that regard, i, I just as a first approximation, it seems to me that there are increasingly what we might call three worlds uh, uh, a western world. Uh, Gideon Rockman called it the global west. Uh, it's a world where where it's it's partly anchored, of course in u s european relations, but it's more than that it's a it's almost a, a, a kind of a A vision or a concept of order that goes beyond simply uh, geography. Uh, The global east, this is China and Russia, and the global south, which we're going to talk a fair amount about today. Each of these uh, groupings has a uh, a narrative of the global order, where we are where we're going, Um, agendas and visions for order, grievances, and, as I said, reform agendas. So this is point number one, that we are in a fractured world, but there are these Large groupings. Uh, number two, as a result of this, the old uh, mechanisms for building order seem to me to be uh, less relevant and readily available as, than they were in the past. And those classic order building mechanisms were what I'll call constitutional rulemaking mechanisms. These are post war moments, these are 1945, 1815, uh, 1919. Uh, Uh, The San Francisco moment, Uh, this is when after war, a moment comes where all the parties are gathered together. Or hegemonic rulemaking, which of course occurred in the shadow of the Cold War, the US system, where uh, a leading state steps forward and subsidizes global order, uh, provides public goods, pushes and pulls countries into multilateral systems, and uses its domestic economy to entice countries into an order that has rules about trade and exchange. So increasingly, those two mechanisms, it seems to me, are not as available, that we increasingly are going to rely on two other mechanisms. One is coalitional uh, rulemaking uh, of like-minded states, um, forging many lateral deals, clubs or hubs, if you will. Uh, And then competitive rulemaking, uh, US-China competing for leadership a uh, competitive rulemaking, attempting to beat the other side, if you will, to uh, a kind of uh, large-scale regime that can govern a particular sector. And, and increasingly, the logic is, in the 21st century, these sorts of uh, um, technology sectors require large grouping, scaling up a uh, 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 competitive uh, room for uh, network externality, the kind of critical path that, uh grouping of states, and here it seems to me that uh, this is where China and the United States are going to find themselves blocking uh, 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 horns, attempting to to uh, uh, beat each other and to, in some sense, uh, establish the platforms for those kinds of uh, cooperation. Third point, the global west, it seems to me that uh, we are in a, in a, in a point where uh, the west is finding itself again. I'm an optimist there. Uh, the, the, the Putin has in some sense done a favor to uh, to these countries, opening uh, the West to a new kind of uh, moment of, of, of cooperation, reestablishing their commitment to open rule-based order. Uh, they have a playbook, a real established playbook for generating wealth and security and uh, rules for order, uh, fairly coherent grouping tied to security, cooperation, cooperative security. Um, three other points about the global West. One is it's not geography, really. Uh, it really is a kind of concept of order. And in that sense, it's both, uh, in some sense, more expansionary than the other two worlds, uh, if you will. But it also is, in some sense, uh, revisionist. It, it gets in the way of other great powers who are not in that world. China and Russia in particular. So in some sense, Ukraine and Taiwan are both states that are, in some sense, trying to connect themselves to the global West, but are uh, in a neighborhood where each is uh, faced with an illiberal great power that's trying to rope them into their uh, to their orbit. So uh, the global West is, in some sense, uh, a a rule-based expansionary principle order but it also can make trouble uh, for the the other major states in the the system second point it's a creative moment i think for for the global west they are uh, uh, making uh, um, efforts to build out uh, uh, relations among various components of this system u.s korea and japan are uh, at a new point in their relationship trying to work a a trilateral uh, Uh, relationship in Northeast Asia, the Quad, the Atlantic groupings, and the G7 is in some sense another great uh, uh, old, uh, often ridiculed uh, mechanism of cooperation that is having a kind of uh, new new moment. And and in Hiroshima this last summer, we saw the G7 countries try to articulate and reach out to other countries uh, to uh, articulate this, this this idea of of, of, a, of a renewed uh, liberal multilateral order. Uh, the weak point of this order, I think, is economics, and Mike mastin know I think, had a, a good uh, summary of, of the issues there, namely that uh, the U.S. is not opening its markets uh, in the way that it did for 70 years of leadership. And, and the question is, can it find a way to be at the center of this system without doing so? The global east, uh, China, and Russia are clearly uh, looking for an alternative kind of a global structure, uh, but not clear what it will be. There's uh, clear grievances about uh, American hegemony, about NATO, uh, uh, about global liberalism as a kind of value embedded in international institutions, um, uh, and reaching out to the global south. And then finally, the global south, which of course uh, has been a a topic that we've been interested in here today, uh, clearly not making choices, not wanting to make choices, not wanting to uh, to side with either the East or the West, um, providing a kind of renewal of of uh, world politics at the UN at the at the General Assembly. There's clearly a new uh, uh, opportunity, I think, for the Global South to raise its voice to be a part of this global architecture use the UN, not so much the Security Council, but use the General Assembly in new ways. But wanting to, in, in important ways, uh, find a, a, a message to both China and the West that uh, the problem, the, the uh, terms on which the Global South will engage and join these different alliances and groupings will be based on what they Provide for these countries in terms of economic betterment. Uh, uh, what's in it for us, so to speak? Great, uh, that meta uh, uh, the social theorist at Princeton has said. And at the end of the day, the global South wants to, is asking the question: Where is the money? Uh, where is the the, uh, the advancement that's going to come our way? Final questions. Final points. So we have a few more minutes. Um, I think this system is relatively stable. I think it is uh, not going to go away. The three parts of the system are not going to collapse into each other. Um, Secondly, I think there is a a kind of creativity to this uh, struggle. I'm very interested in that. How will competitive rulemaking work out? Uh, Is there an opportunity for these countries to, to in some sense, race to the top rather than race to the bottom? And then finally, uh, are there, general principles that might be identified, that can provide um, uh, the terms for reaching across these divides, a a kind of language that isn't simply as the Western countries might want it to be grounded in liberal democracy and old uh, uh, values that they champion, but a a language, a vernacular of international politics that might be more broadly uh, acceptable and understood, understood reciprocity, transparency, best practices, sovereign equality, and uh, the idea of risk uh, risk management and uh, 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 mutual vulnerability. Uh, ideas that, uh, interestingly, uh, were there during the Cold War. Even divide, even amidst the, the divisions between East and West, uh, between the Soviet Union and the West, the idea that uh, we do have uh, a series of global uh of common interests, shared faiths. Uh, again, the idea of risk management. in mean, areas such as agricultural policy, health policy, and ultimately arms control, uh, that was that allowed a kind of technocratic functional um Effort to to cut across the the, the, the east west divide the iron curtain and find new new terms for engagement. So on that optimistic note, I'll just end there.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Um, great, David.
4: Thank you. Uh, firstly, we also uh, my thanks to Peter for um, including me in this uh, in this conference and in these discussions, um, and especially to bring. Uh, an african perspective uh, to the uh, to to a thinking on 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 these issues um uh, also just to say that uh, i'm approaching this from a political economy perspective the political economy framework which is uh, within the, the area within which i work and even within that from the trade economics corner so that's what i uh, want to uh, bring 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 to you Um, I think Jonah has given us uh, a sort of meta uh, view of of these issues. And I think I'm going to be a bit more granular in in terms of trying to situate um, the uh, African countries uh, and and the challenges that they they face. Uh, I'll be talking about Africa in general, but uh, of course, I'm aware that there are 54 countries, 54 political economies, 54 different types of uh, challenges, but even under that, uh, there is much that um, they have in in in, in common, um, and then also to make the point that uh, uh, that the um, Africa, of course, as part of the Global South, um, also um, is not. Uh, uh, I think we have to understand that there is uh, much differentiation within the the, the Global South. Um, uh, whereas uh, I think it was Raja who at the point this morning that we are seeing some convergence. Um, uh, between countries of the global south and and you know the general global north and, and others, uh, but actually in Africa I think we are seeing some reversals, and um, I wanted to sort of highlight this this point. Um, also, I, in Africa today we have um, uh, the world's um, highest incidence of um, extreme poverty. I think sixty percent of um, Those that are in extreme poverty uh, now live in in Africa as as poverty rates have fallen uh, elsewhere. Um, So so, sort of framing it this way um, and looking at this uh, also from a a trade perspective, first point I'd like to make is that um, trade is important for Africa as a channel of integration into the global economy. Um well over 300 billion uh, dollars worth of trade um, uh, uh, hap- uh, occurs with um, the, the African countries. Um, uh, and that is uh, uh, much more than what Africa receives um, uh, in terms of uh, foreign direct investment or in terms of um, uh, overseas development assistance. I had a few Slides and metrics that I wanted to show, but I, they're not—they're not here. But in any event, uh, trade is the um, largest source of foreign exchange into African countries, followed by uh, remittances. And I think some a point was made this morning about uh, uh, about different types of globalizations and um, how the diaspora uh, uh, also interacts in in that. And we see this in 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 terms of remittances. But um, Africa's trade underperforms and and this is what the uh, this is where the problem is um uh, Africa now accounts for two point three percent of uh, world exports uh this has fallen from about four percent of world exports uh, in uh, in in the 90s uh, you know till uh yeah okay this was the, <laughs> okay thank you uh, this was the, what uh, want they 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 yeah, to give us um, you know the, the perspective of, of of how important exports are for for Africa, um, and uh, yeah, uh, exports important, trade important, but underperforms, and and you know this is the um, uh, story there. Um, we see this also in in services, uh, although uh, our services have, uh, exports have grown nominally, uh, but again as a share of world exports, uh, we see a declining. Trend. and this is uh, part of telling the story that um, Africa is not converging uh, with the rest of the world. Um, uh, and the um, African exports um, uh, concentrated, as, as, as you know, in um, uh, commodities uh, with um, uh, fuels and, and metals uh, being uh, the highest uh, component. Manufactures relatively small as well as uh, uh, food, um, and uh, the kind of investment that Africa um, is receiving, um, you know, firstly, it's um, uh, you know, whilst world uh, stock of investment has grown, we find that there's also been nominal growth in in Africa, but not anywhere near what um, Africa needs, and the investments um, very much concentrated in uh, um, in um, uh, Commodities, uh, mining, metals, uh, fuels, uh, especially. Um, and uh, when you look at um, uh, the composition of investment for um, Africa's partners, uh, take the EU, take China, see um, very much uh, a similar uh, pattern, although there's some, some uh, differentiation. with uh, You can see that uh, uh, Chinese investment in transport infrastructure stands out uh, Uh, very much, although again, Chinese investment in um, in fuels, uh, uh, oil, and all that is is, is quite high. Um, The EU is interesting because, um, uh, you know, although there's this similar concentration investment in in the mining sector, you see um, uh, some EU investment in manufacturing. Although this is concentrated in just a few countries, uh, especially South Africa, the Automobile uh, industry, but um, manufacturing and several other countries. We are seeing a lot of EU investment also going into North African countries like Morocco and Tunisia. Um, US the same kind of story uh, with the concentration of investments in um, in the mining sector. Why this is a concern is uh, that you the, the African countries do need um, to. Get out of this um, commodity trap uh, and uh, be able to uh, diversify the economies. Uh, to be able to, um, uh, especially manufacturing, agriculture, uh, these um, uh, these um, uh, the, these sectors. And as I mentioned, that um, demography could either be Africa's friend or foe. Um, uh, the uh, whilst the rest of the world is aging, uh, the African. Population is supposed to uh, double by um, uh, 2050, uh, meaning that um, we need to create jobs for youths. And this kind of investment does not generate the also of jobs that um, Africa needs because uh, it's a mainly capital intensive uh, investments that you need to uh, have more um, going into um, manufacturing, agriculture, agricultural processing, and, and so on um same story when you look at uh, um africa's uh, imports um uh, you know a market for um importing manufacturers uh, not uh, making them making things in 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 Africa as such and so not creating the the jobs um but uh, this is where also the large African market as it grows could um uh, be helpful if um Uh, this transition, this conjunction that Africa finds itself in if it um, is able to uh, uh, navigate it uh, uh, quite well. And that is, um, the data shows uh, something that is very interesting, that um, when Africa trades with itself, uh, inter-African exports and so on, um, you find that the manufacturing sector, which is where the jobs are, uh, is much larger than the other sectors. So it's the uh, reverse of what we've seen um, when Africa trades with the uh, rest of the rest of the world. A um, uh, few slides here, uh, you know, just to show the, um, uh, the destination of Africa's exports. Um, the EU, uh, of course, um, still a big partner, uh, although some countries now have China as their uh, biggest uh, export uh, destination, but um, uh, collectively uh, in aggregate uh, the EU and uh, and, and and this kind of order um, here in uh, uh, exports. Uh, uh, previous slide was exports. Um, part of the argument that I made in the in the um, uh, book on how Africa trades is that um, uh, when it comes to um, the WTO, um, because the African countries are so weakly integrated into the uh, global economy. Uh, you look at um, uh, the WTO dispute uh, settlement uh, system. Look at um, the sorts of cases that have been brought there. You find that um, uh, Africans have only really participated in the WTO as uh, third party, uh, in, as, as third parties in, in in cases, and not bringing up cases themselves. I think there have only been two uh, cases that have been brought to the WTO by African countries, uh, and then the. All sorts of systemic issues. Uh, for that, of course, um, one of the answers to one of one of the um, issues uh, concerning this is uh, the way that um, disputes are resolved, which um, requires uh, retaliation. And if you're a small economy, it's not possible to be able to retaliate, uh, etc. But you know, but this is a, a very clear indication of how weakly integrated the African countries are in the WTO, and um, why uh, there is a case for. Um, Uh, relaxing uh, WTO goals over transition period for the the African uh, countries. As I wrap up, um, just to make a a few more points. um, uh, Firstly, um, in terms of then how African countries are um, navigating this uh, fractured uh, geopolitical order, everything that was said this morning, I think I agree with. Um, You see a number of these Uh, summits, uh, the Indian-Africa summits, the EU-Africa summit, the um, US-Africa summit, uh, Russia-Africa, you you name them. Um, Whilst, of course, um, those who are hosting these summits have their own interests. But um, at the same time, I think African countries do recognize that um, they need all these different partnerships um, for what they could bring in terms of investment, in terms of technology, technology. and in in terms of supporting the effort at the uh, diversification meeting uh, creating jobs for the youth and, and so on uh, so you do find that in this fractured uh, political order that the african countries um, again you know generalizing but uh, different political economies but the way they're engaging uh, i think they're exercising the agency in in their own interest as, as they as as they see it and you see this also as has been mentioned in response to the um Ukraine war, where um, number of African countries in the UN resolution uh, on the war um, uh, abstained. Uh, some voted for the resolution, but those was a smaller number uh, opposed it. But you know, again, sort of reflecting uh, that um, uh, their their own interests, their own autonomy in this uh, uh, this, um, uh, this this particular uh, uh, situation. Um, demography, as I said, is um, biggest challenge for the African countries um, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, what the future uh, may unfold. Uh, if African countries are able to use this their market, including um, being able to successfully uh, implement this uh, free trade agreement that they have uh, to uh, integrate their economies, um, grow their markets. Uh, if they're able to do that successfully and if they're able to uh, undertake this transition the next 20 30 years um, and be able to go in that direction then demography will be their friend now if they fail I think um you're going to see uh you know suddenly um uh, a lot more disruption already we are seeing um, some issues that are arising again from the uh, uh, the weakness of the state that presides over a relatively weak economy um and Taxation was mentioned uh, this morning. Uh, And one aspect of that, of course, is that um, economies that are not growing um, and and formalizing uh, also means that the tax base is quite narrow. And so the social contract also is uh, weak. Um, And you have seen already the return of um, military coups, uh, which um, I think um, uh, uh, reflect these um, challenges as they played out. So, I'd just like to end with this point that um, yes, the African countries uh, are navigating this uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic order with stealth. Uh, overall, I see this in their interest, uh, uh, doing this in their, in their interest overall. Um, and at the same time, of course, um, trying to ensure that their own agenda for economic growth, how they could le- leverage the, their market um, as a source of growth, is um, uh, something that they uh, clearly uh, 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 have uh, prioritized. So yes, um, so different um, political economy coalitions within African countries could help to drive the sorts of reforms that they uh, require for attracting uh, investment for um, uh, for diversifying uh, the economies. Uh, so we'll see some differentiation among African countries. And uh, if uh, the transition goes well, you'll begin to see some uh, convergence um, uh, of the type that that, that we uh, talked about um, uh, this morning. And finally, also, of course, just to note that um, uh, whilst, of course, um, only South Africa has been part of the uh, G20, we now see the African Union um, with a seat at the G20, which again gives it another platform for engaging. Uh, with other players uh, at the uh, at the G20 for the same reasons that it has been doing with all these uh, summits with all these uh, other players. So I think I'll 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 stop here. Um, I think these were the main points that um, indeed I wanted to make. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you, Nita. I'm going to stand so I don't put myself to sleep. And it is post-lunch. When I teach my class on globalization
6: and and focus on the Bretton Woods institutions, particularly the World Bank and IMF, I like to show this slide. And I think it captures a lot of what we have been talking about this last day and a half. That, you know, initially it was the IMF, the World Bank, telling developing countries they need to reform and now uh, the developing countries telling the World Bank and IMF that they need to reform. Um, and then, as I was preparing for this presentation, like I haven't taught this class in a couple of years. Uh, wait, this is no longer relevant because here's where we are at. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it a step further than John and say yes, we're it, we are in a state of fragmentation. Um, but I'm gonna say that we are fragmented. Also within uh, the developed world and the developing world, particularly when it comes to the new international economic order, what are the next steps, the big theme for our conference? What is this post-neoliberal world going to look like? Um, I'm also going to take my cue from John and say, I'm going to present a suggestion, an idea, a thought that's based on recent international economic history and uh, it's going to be led by, how did you say it? A hegemonic ruled order, hegemonic rulemaking. So uh, let me put into context, uh, the Bretton Woods system, right? The Bretton Woods Conference. So the last time that we faced so much uncertainty about what the future of the global economy would look like was World War II. And at that time, I would still argue that we were better off because there was a consensus. I mean, this brought together, what, 200, almost 200 delegates from 44 countries, um, mostly the developed countries and mostly men. Um, but they did agree that because of what happened uh, during the first phase of globalization, during the gold standard and then World War II, that, um, that we really needed to come together and establish that. Openness was critical for that, and that we had to cooperate in, uh, with countries for there to be stability. Now, the roots of this comes, um, and at the same time, so they established, of course, the fixed uh, an international currency, um, and their main goal was to revive free trade. Right. And free flow of capital, but more controls on capital, but free trade. Another aspect which we really emphasize in our subdiscipline of international political economy that's been talked about less today, uh, but it has been talked about implicitly, is that they also emphasize, and John Ruggie pointed this out in 1982, he called it embedded liberalism. That national governments, because they learned from from history, that if you don't, uh, at the same time, if you privilege too much your international markets, there's going to be instability and there's going to be a backlash. So you have to compensate the losers from globalization. Um, this comes, of course, from Carl Polanyi. He talked about the first great transformation when, um, uh, after the gold standard because of this emphasis on laissez-faire and... Uh, not enough uh, protection of society. And he argues it led to um, great power rivalry in World War One. There was uh, so-called Polanyi Pall- argues that if you don't embed the economy in society, you're going to have this kind of backlash. And then, of course, there was the pre-war period in which there was high tariff barriers. There's this turn to economic nationalism, competitive currency devaluations that led to the Great Depression. Everyone's unhappy. So... In order to avoid this, we established the Brentwood system. And, and the idea was that this was going to create stability and prevent the, the hardships that occurred because of open markets. Um, and, uh, Danny Roderick, both Stephanie and I have worked on this, and we have found empirical evidence that suggested this worked. That economies, governments did this, at least in the developed world, that they did do this. That as countries opened up, they did compensate or make efforts to compensate, increase government to maintain stability. But here we are. Something happened. It didn't work. And these protests, as you can see in this picture, this and and the theme of what we've been talking about this day and a half has been has been global. Now lots of things happened, Bretton Woods started to wither, at least this this idea of embedded liberalism as as Ruggie called it. I mean, we had the Cold War, it became capitalism versus communism. Of course, we had the fall of the of, of the fixed exchange rate system in 1971 or the dollar pay. we had the debt crisis. So we had the rise of neoliberalism, right? And this is where co- Carl would again, would say we disembedded the economy. And so this would be one of the arguments for why. And now, as we've talked about for this conference, we've come back to economic nationalism. Um, again, putting, emphasizing the state too much. So what are the some of the triggers? There's many. Um, but one of the ones that we focused on in a conference is these international financial institutions have supported a globalization that, has allowed the many to prosper. Um, oh, sorry, the few to prosper, and and the many that have fallen behind. As, as, is it Darren or Darren? I've heard of Darren. I've heard it pronounced both ways today. As he, as he, very well explained yesterday, automation has compounded this program. We've talked about today about inadequate investment in the labor force. So what happens is, although there are many sources of of this increased inequality and this unhappiness that's happening right now, workers and politics—it's become polit- politically convenient to blame globalization. As far as I know, there's no legislation on the table to control automation, <laughs> but there is legislation and process to increase tariffs. There is there is a political—it becomes an easy globalization becomes an easy scapegoat, and before. The average person, I grew up in St. Cloud, Florida, nobody had heard about globalization. No one had an opinion on it. And now everyone has an opinion. They don't really understand it, but they have an opinion on it because Donald Trump told us it was responsible for killing the American dream. So now everybody has become extremely politicized. So now we're in a in a vicious cycle where we're implementing policies that's going to make the average worker even worse off in the long run. So it's a problem. And and there's some truth to it. It has benefited just the few. So, and I'm gonna argue this is global that workers don't believe that the global economy is working for them. And um, it hasn't been distributed equally among individuals. So it has brought a lot of prosperity but not to everyone equally. And this inequality compounds existing social and political tensions and it further undermines beliefs in the global economy. So I want to emphasize again that this is global, right? I think Raja talked about how globalization's been good, especially for developing countries. And that is the common perception in the US as well, right? Donald Trump talked about it. The Indians, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, they're all taking our jobs. Um, so when this graph shows, um, and Stephanie and I and I collected a lot of this data, this is that as this is the year since liberalization, and this is a global sample. And what you see on uh, the uh, the y axis is change in support for globalization between high skilled and low skilled labor. Again, coming back to Darren's thesis yesterday, right? So, what you see is that gap between high skill and low skilled labor. Initially, everybody is optimistic. The IFIs did a good job of selling the globalization promise. Uh, to workers. So initially in both rich and poor countries, you see that the gap between high skilled and low skilled laborers is very small. So everybody is optimistic about globalization. But as time goes on and years pass since liberalization, you see the gap between high skill and low skill support for globalization getting even bigger. Now, we have a similar graph that I didn't include here, but we also map this uh, which uh, with uh, how much you believe that your children will do better than you will do, right? Judy Goldstein at Stanford says, I'm obsessed with this variable of social mobility because I think that's what's different now, right? The US has always been the most unequal country in the world. There's nothing, oh, sorry, in the developed world. <laughs> There's nothing new about that. What's different today is this decline, this belief that the American dream that hard work will not lead to success something that's come over and over with our speakers, that that is what has changed in recent times, that they don't feel that they're children, that the future is promising um, for the next generation. So this is is where I'm gonna suggest that the IFIs can play a role and the hegemon can promote uh, a hegemonic rule-based order. The fundamental, and I think probably here, very few of you will disagree with this, but it's not emphasized is that trade and redistribution have to go hand in hand, right? This is um, consistent with Polanyi, right? But I'm going to make the argument in a different way. Right. And that essentially means you can't have trade and openness without redistribution. And you can't have redistribution without trade and openness. It's a very, very simple concept actually. Um, But, How, but we have to, so this is the new paradigm that's suggesting, right? The new type of embedded liberalism, the new Bretton Woods conference that we need to have, right? And it has, just like the IFI has played a huge role in promoting neoliberalism, they can change their approach to globalization so that it becomes easier for the average worker to understand and support it. Again, the simple concept of trade and redistribution going hand in hand. So what else is unique here is the focus should be on creating winners. That's something else that's a theme that's come out at at this uh, at several of the panels, right? We've been talking so long about compensating losers. And I would say that's what happened at the Bretton Woods compromise. It was, we gotta compensate losers, TAA. That's what it was all about. But we're in a different era as Naron told us yesterday. So we can't just focus on compensating losers. Really the emphasis now needs to shift given the advancements in technology and the the growing gap between skilled and unskilled to
5: creating winners. It's an important shift. It's a really critical shift that could make all the difference. So as
6: we've said before, there's different types of capitalism so we're talking about a, a globalization here that's not neoliberalism, a capitalism that's not just neoliberalism. It, it's one that exists with what I'm going to call social investment. It's not a term I came up with. right? Uh, we, we know about social assistance. Social assistance is targeted. It's focused on the vulnerable. It's focused on the losers. Social investment is universal. And what social investment is policies that are focused on strengthening people's skills and capacities to fully participate in the marketplace. Um, so it doesn't, as Daron again said yesterday, it doesn't have to be formal education. It can be, you know, a more quality education, it could be retraining, it's quality childcare, it's healthcare, right? And this together is the idea behind. Um, shared prosperity. So, international financial ins- institutions can advance this new research and inform policies that interlink open markets with social investment. I want to show you some data. So, one of the big questions is how are we going to get consensus on this, right? We know how polarized the environment is, and I especially emphasize the US here. So, we collected data at the very local level on a proxy for social investment. And 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 I was super excited when these trends came up because I found it I find it a huge source of hope. The narrative in the US is that Republicans don't want government investment. They don't want government to do it to interfere in any type of market activity. They don't want to enable the poor to become more needy. But when you look at education at the very local level, which is where uh, the financing and the education decisions are actually made, we saw a really interesting trend. Um, So we looked at the red line represents steady Republican districts, and the blue line represents steady Democratic districts. And what you'll see, this is 2000 to, to, to the present. And what you see is that it's been increasing in both Republican and Democratic districts. And this is not just that districts, or sorry, this is county level. This is not that counties are investing in every type of social program. Because interestingly, when you look at something that's more of a core conservative um, category, which is law and order, police, you see the partisan divide that you would expect. So turning to the World Bank. So if we could have our hegemon If we can, I mean, we're a declining hegemon, but we're still a hegemon and we still have control over the World Bank and how a lot of these IFIs operate and think. Um, So the World Bank has increasingly recognized that social protection has, you walk into this fancy building and it says our dream is to alleviate poverty. Right, So they've always focused on targeted transfers, which is kind of ironic because they're focusing on poor countries. Targeted transfers are so expensive. You need a sophisticated bureaucracy. You need, you need monitoring systems. You need enforcement systems. Developing countries don't have that. So in a social investment type world, if the World Bank were to to shift to emphasizing social investment, not ignoring social transfers, but emphasizing social investment, that's something that's more doable and affordable even in developing countries. So interestingly, the World Bank's always reforming and now they have all these global practices. There's like 18 or 20 global practices. And here's some examples, education, human development, jobs, trade and investment. When I look at them, they're all discrete categories so wouldn't it be smart <laughs> to have one category called trade and social investment a and then b for each of these education human development jobs link it to the global economy let's link our our uh, social investment to our to our comparative advantage if the ifi start doing that if the us starts doing that it will it is possible that it will become part of the psyche of um of of voters and i know in the last panel there was some dissensus as you know 50 year olds don't want to go from be working in manufacturing to working for it again i'm focused on that variable i'm obsessed with which is the future generation right i th- i do think that parents i do think that this generation would be supporting social investment so that the next generation will have these types of skills that will make them more um will will support more labor-friendly technology. Um, And then the IMF uh, has been criticized, of course, in recent years, they have been focusing, we know their mandate is for international financial management, but they have had to focus on the distributional effects of their policy. But the IMF too is again, let's just look at those targeted targeted transfers, right? It's not a core area of debate. Um, I found this interesting study, that surveys find the staff do not feel that they have received clear instructions on the type of work they're expected to do with regard to social protection. Um, And there's no long-term focus here. IMF promotes targeting of social safety nets that can mitigate the impact of some of the reform measures of the most vulnerable. So again, focusing on social assistance instead of social investment, which... We're seeing some evidence that this could get a lot more buy in by a lot more people across the ideological divide. Um, this is, I, I am extraordinarily impressed that all of you stayed after lunch. I thought for sure everybody would disappear. And I think that's testament to Peter and his amazing team. This has been just the most well organized, the most interesting, and the most timely. Conference And I just want to conclude with this quote from the Pope that I think well, is a nice conclusion to all the exciting panels that in a world that tends towards economic and cultural globalization, every effort must be paid to ensure that growth and development are put at the service of all and not just limited parts of the population.
3: That was a great panel. It's a very diverse panel in
1: terms of this sort of um, uh, the the altitude uh, and the granularity. So I'll try to get us started, but we'll come quickly to the audience. I think we have about 35 minutes and I know we have tremendous questions waiting. Um, so please put your hands up. Um, I guess I'll ask the sort of, and I don't mean in any way to um, gloss over because you both, the, the two of you gave us very granular um, arguments. Um, uh, and so, but let me ask you a, a sort of general question. I guess in in some senses there is division displayed in each of your arguments. Yours is quite large. And I think earlier panelists disagreed with you perhaps, um, on whether, you know, the East is really the East, um, for example, but, and you, and, and you talked about, you know, that, that slide, that great slide where you now we're against each other with, within these blocks. Um, and your the the slide of yours that stood out to me was that africa does better when it focuses on itself i mean i that's a oversimplification but on, on intra african trade um manufacturing going up so can you do global governance with 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 all of this happening maybe i'll start with you john or or you know is <laughs> you have these norms that you want us to build but i i guess the implication of this is that you do that through you know the World Trade Organization, these vast organizations that aren't really you know very agile, flexible, or you know working. Um, so, do you is is the is the aspiration of the panel still to work at that level, or is it you know you leave it in place and you move forward with the plurilaterals, with the regional organizations, and and work up or work along? I mean, what's your solution, John?
2: Well, I. Yeah, my solution is great. Um, well, I I think my message is, is we are in a world where we're going to have lots of different types of institutions that will do different things, and countries will be picking and choosing, and we won't be back to Bretton Woods. And, and while I would like to see us at, at least go through the intellectual um process of trying to have that kind of constitutional moment. If we were to do Bretton Woods again, what would be those norms? And I do think that's important. Uh, I think a lot of the, uh, the fracture that I'm, I'm suggesting is, is, is in the way of, of a kind of constitutional or even a hegemonic uh, reorganization of governance generally, but economic governance in particular, is, is, is leading us to much more fragmentation which isn't bad because there's a lot of deals to be made, it seems to me. I think that the fragmentation itself creates incentives for, for example, uh, the U.S. and the European shareholders in the World Bank to, to rethink how the World Bank gets involved in development assistance. Uh, the World Bank moved away from infrastructure development over the last several decades, and there seems to be some inclination with the... Uh, a, Belton Road in the background to do to do more of that certainly to expand the the size of the the uh, accounts so that there can be more lending um, so the, the kind of competitive fractured system can have those kind of effects um, in in where the in some sense the most new rulemaking can perhaps take place is in uh, areas where there's kind of um, greenfield where we aren't where there aren't existing institutions or even uh, norms in place i think this is to some extent on the edges of the economic zones or or spheres but this is where new technologies technological revolutions create um, not just obligations and necessities for regulation but uh, incentives to be there be first Create large coalitions, and I think AI is a good example of that Britain is is attempting to uh, develop what you might call a model regime uh, in that area. Uh, so I think I think there are um, uh, lots of different spaces where rulemaking can occur, but I I, I find it it tough to see the the big um, the big new uh, uh, kind of effort. One final thing, and and I think this goes to what Mike was talking about with uh, the the, the kind of shift in American thinking away from organizing its own leadership of the system around trade liberalization. And I think this is a momentous shift. And I think uh, I think the administration knows it is, too. I think Jake knows that he is. Uh, asking us to think about how we might be able to be remain in a, in a relatively open rule-based order, but without uh, kind of ever more ingredients of globalization added to it. And so for me, the biggest question is, and, and I don't know quite where that, the, 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 your question, uh, Leslie, where the, the platform for negotiating this new era understanding of how to stabilize relations in this, Transition to a post liberalization agenda, but it, it, it does entail rules of the road, a kind of understanding that uh, industrial policy, subsidies, national security driven export uh, constraints and restraints will not be uh, used to uh, be politicized and used to kind of a race to the bottom, a kind of free uh, for all uh, for. Protectionism and beggar thy neighbor policies. So where does that and maybe this is a question to throw back to my colleagues here, where does that <laughs> platform get built? Where's the space uh, internationally for that set of negotiations? because that's that will determine whether that's done right or done wrong will determine. Uh, which world we'll be in.
1: And maybe we can build on that and ask you, David, to also comment specifically at the end of your presentation, you got us to that very interesting moment where the AU now has a seat. Um, And a lot of people are saying on the G20, and a lot of people are saying, what is the AU going to do with that? Um, Do you see that as potentially, uh, you know, significant? Um,
4: Uh, Potentially significant. Uh, The AU, of course, um, is a coordinating you know body for the uh, African countries uh, does not um, operate in the same way um, as the uh, EU does in terms of having an executive commission that can take uh, binding um, you know decisions on behalf of um, the member states and so on there isn't that uh, kind of institutional uh, framework within the AU for that but nonetheless it, is, it does uh, uh, coordinate the efforts of the, uh, uh, the African countries so we could potentially use it. Um, to continue to engage uh, with uh, other countries um, for um, supporting the uh, priorities that um, the African countries know that they need to pursue. Um, you know, just giving how far behind uh, they they are. Um, uh, okay. Just this point about um, also uh, new institutions that may be needed in this um, uh, sort of um, uh, this this this, this um, conjuncture that we find ourselves in one area where um, uh, perhaps uh, scope to think through how this could be done is um, and technology we've seen during the pandemic that um, uh, you know the uh, uh, you know problems relating to um, getting the vaccines to the African countries and and so on and after the pandemic these efforts uh, by um, companies like um, uh, the uh, German company, the MR, or whatever, uh, to establish some um, manufacturing uh, facilities in, in African countries. But I think the bigger problem is um, how do you do technology transfer? Um, is there scope for some uh, global institutional framework uh, for for that? Because that's going to be important for uh, uh, for African countries as as well. And you know, certainly regionally also. Um, I think. Um, there's scope too for the um, not just the World Bank, the role of the World Bank and the IMF, but the multilateral um, development banks that operate at regional level. We need to see them also step up um, in, in, in new ways to respond to uh, challenges to the day.
1: Thank you. And not to mention debt and climate and everything else. I want to ask you about Mia Motley, but I won't. Um, Nita, where do these norms get embedded? Does it matter which institutions, or do you have a, a view on this broader I, question?
5: I, I think the existing institutions are are primed to do this. They're the ones that spread the neoliberal paradigm. Um, how we get over this political, you know, quagmire that everything is globalization's fault. That other than educating the public that you know, economic nationalism is going to hurt them more than help them. And that globalization is actually good for them. Uh, as long as we had companies, we just have to marry social investment with our comparative advantage, the care economy, tradable service. It's it's not a heavy lift. It's just getting over the... The, the, thing,
1: the thing that most of us studied.
5: <laughs> that that we have now.
1: Yeah, kind of a heavy lift, I think.
5: Um, Robert Wade,
3: right back here. I had a question. Please stand up, I think. Um, and is there a mic somewhere, maybe? For Robert Wade. The gentleman in the blue in the middle. Thank you.
7: Robert Wade from whoops. Robert Wade from the Department of International Development here at LSE. Um, I'm going to pour just a little bit of cold water on John's. <laughs> Don Aikenberry's um, optimism um, in terms of <laughs> the World Bank and the IMF, for example, um, they remain very heavily governed by the um, the Western countries and, in particular, by the Europeans. That is, the Europeans are determined to maintain their overrepresentation in both the bank and the fund. Um, and that is kind of blocking the um, the movement of new ideas uh, such as post-neoliberalism from the discussion agenda to the action agenda of these um, organizations. Um, so that's the situation with the multilateral organizations. In terms of multilateral organizations, of countries in the South, I mean, only of the South, the obvious one is the BRICS, but the BRICS are not doing well. They've created two financing mechanisms uh, since they started, one of which the contingent reserve arrangement meant to be um, a complement or alternative to the IMF is is dead. It's not functioning at all. Um, And then the new development bank has got off to a a very slow start um, and they are, just beginning to discuss um, a new international currency, which they call um, the R5. This is their code name for the new currency, the R5, for the reason that the currencies of all five BRICS members begin with the letter R. Um, And they've just now had this extraordinary um, addition of six new countries, very disparate countries, and that's guaranteed to make the BRICS even less effective than they have been so far. So um, I think that the, um, the scope for optimism is a little bit more limited than John was suggesting.
1: Okay, maybe we'll take two questions before we come back to the three of you. Please, this, the, um, yeah, this is- Ian, I think we have a mic here for you.
8: This is for Nita. Uh, I love what you're doing, and I. your research is fascinating, and I'm completely with you that the combination of trade openness and social protection is social protection geared towards generating inclusive growth. There's got to be the sort of sweet spot. Um, but I just want to come back to where the agency is going to come from for this. You know, first, it's not unprecedented, I mean, in that sense. You know, it's it's good. You know, while you were talking, I was thinking back to, you know, people like David Cameron's work in the 1970s showing that the most trade open countries also had the most robust welfare states. And uh, so it's not, it's not like this is without precedent. But I want, you know, I think there are two big obstacles. One is it's not just now just misinformation people. You've got, you know, Jake Sullivan actively declaring war on this. I mean, before his long before his, you know, April 2023 speech, you know, he was making speeches on principles to govern American security. I, I mean, one I eight page speech, I think it was in 2022 or 2021, where, you know, in eight pages, he said the word protection seven times. And, uh, and it's obviously partly driven by thinking, oh, well, you know, we woke up and saw China caught up. But it's also they're running scared of Trump voters and, and Sanders voters at home. So I, it's, it's not any longer just a question of disinformation. The other thing is, if you go back to the last time we had uh, you know, a coalition for all of this. It was, you know, as people like Peter Swenson and others have pointed out, it was really a cross-class coalition with business and labor supporting the expansion of these welfare states. And you know, business, even though you know I'm trying to speak to them, I feel I'm shouting at the wind to a high degree. So, have, could you talk more about where you think the agency is going to come from?
1: Those are great questions. We'll come to the third one soon, uh, but all three of you, I'm sure, have something to say. John and I'm, I'm sure that David, you'll have something to say about the BRICS or other source form sites of agency. Uh, David, you would you like to start, and then we'll come to you, John, and and Nita. Well,
4: on BRICS, yeah, uh, don't really. Have, but I think it's you know, I think I fully agree with what uh, Robert Wait said. Uh, uh, you know about about, about the BRICS. Um, I, I see. Uh, you know the coherence, uh, internal coherence, and uh, you know the, the challenges uh, there. John. Well, I'm going to defer to
2: Robert on the IMF <laughs> and World Bank. So I, uh, but I, but not Sorry. on pessimism. <laughs> yeah, I, in the sense that I, I do think that that uh, the well, I want what I want to defend is a vision of a of a of, of an international political economy that is not on the road to closure to the 1930s, but that is renegotiated around rules that manage openness and that uh, provide uh, reciprocal gains for all relevant parties. And so uh, the new rules of the road, and this is why I'm not so much uh, highlighting or endorsing uh, the uh, governance Changes small as they are at the World Bank and y- and IMF, because I agree they are small. The, the reforms are, are are small. The voting changes are small. There's more change on policy. I think. I think Yellen is trying to again with a view towards uh, competitors uh, to uh, increase lending amounts and raise more capital and so forth. But um, it's the it's it's the view that that I don't think that we are. Kind of headlong into an era of of economic nationalism, and I think what I'm optimistic about is that that there are groups of countries that uh, seem to know the, the the moment we're in and are trying to to uh, adjust uh, the the rules that allow for both domestic um, uh, to to accommodate our deeply vulnerable domestic uh uh, uh publics uh, who don't. Uh, who are insecure, as as we've seen and heard today, but to reconcile that with some kind of openness. So we're kind of at that next era of embedded liberalism where we look for some way to, to uh, undergird uh, workers and try to find that middle class uh, security that's missing. Because if we don't, the internationalists will be thrown out of office and then we will really be in Trump's world. So, when you say we, John, do you mean the United States or are you talking globally? I think, first of all, kind of we being the uh, advanced industrial societies, the U.S. and its allies and partners, and I think uh, potentially larger coalitions with the global south who, I, who don't want to simply move into a, a, a Chinese centered system, which is a different kind of uh, connectivity project. And we haven't talked about that yet, but it is different. It's a system logic different difference, and again, global South countries don't want to make a choice. But there is there, there are two different logics on on tap, and I think this we'll call it this Western logic still has um, a lot of life in it if it's reformed. It's, it is not uh, the end of globalization. It's a it's a new era of regulated globalization that that allows us to if if it's done right, and it might not be. Uh, a, a, a a a place where we can keep the system open with relatively open societies. Just final point. Remember how complicated the end goal is for for countries that are trying to hold on to uh, the order that was established and run and evolved over the last 75 years. It's It's an order that is attempting to create conditions for open societies to live in an open system, to have relatively high levels of exchange uh, and to have relatively open rule-based domestic systems and though there's just deep tensions between those two goals that we've found only in very in- imperfect ways efforts to kind of find compromises to keep them going but i think we are in a in a space now where we're trying to recreate that those compromises and that's why that's my only source of optimism
1: I appreciate your optimism. It feels like a lot of the world's in a much more urgent moment. And I know you know that very well. Um, Nita, you might have more to say, but we, we also have another question, which I'm sure is going to come to you. So, Nita.
5: We have to engage in an information war. Everyone already started it, with Otter, Dorn, Hansen. We need to take it down to the local level, where people live, where they function, where they experience politics. So we now know that all the areas that have been hit hard with the China shock our data that we spent
6: we use Darren's model extended to the the china shock's over uh, people aren't seeing this we need to show them we need to do it in very simple we never sold the globalization message to the public and that was
5: a huge mistake we sold it to developing countries <laughs> we didn't sell it locally in the developed countries so we need to engage in information war and make it local you had a question Are there's a, if we can have a mic like
3: Thank you, this is so to Nita, Uh, that was... Okay, wonderful.
0: That was like a manifesto for a new global governance, but I, which is great, very ambitious, and there's a lot, I agree in it, but I think there's one big element missing in it which relates to Robert Wade's question. I don't think IMF and the World Bank are the right institutions because the big missing piece in the new global governance along the lines of your agenda would be an independent voice for the developing world on the direction of AI and what type of globalization we want. And right now that's completely missing. There is no institution that represents, any institution is either captured by, the U S or China. And without such an institution, it seems hard for me to think that those very consequential decisions, like what type of globalizations, what rules, what direction of technology are going to be made in a way that's consistent with long run development for the developing world.
5: But they listen to the IMF and the world bank. David, do you want to come in on this as well?
4: I'm sure. Yeah, on the, you know, the absence of, uh framework for technology, I I think, uh, again, I I agree with this. I think um, that's going to be a challenge, um, you know, going into the future. Um, I'm seeing uh, a number of papers coming out on this issue of technology transfer, looking at the uh, intellectual property uh, issues, uh, uh, looking at, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other aspects related to to, to this. But, you know, clearly, I think this is uh, one area where um, you know, there is something of a lacuna, you know, where we have to see, um uh, you know, yes, uh, what uh, uh, could emerge, um, yeah, on, on technology.
5: Do you have more to say on this? No, I just respectfully disagree. Yeah. Respectfully disagree. <laughs> that sounds like
1: a dinner <laughs> conversation. Um, um, <laughs> uh, that was an, an, an avenue for continuing. Um, I thought I saw a question right back here. Yes, exactly.
3: Hi, I'm yeah, uh, um, Emine. First-year student here at LA. Um, we talked about international institutions like the World Bank can strategically respond to the globalization. We
7: can also think of the European Court of Justice that has become more restrictive in its re- reasoning and rulings to better align with growing public opposition to free movement of
1: pe- people, for example. But do you think that these responses could be considered as double-edged swords as they may invite further opposition in the long term by compromising the input and output legitimacy of these institutions? Thank you. And then one from the gentleman right here in the light blue. If you put your hand way up in the air so they know where to bring it. Thank you.
7: Uh, yeah, Hugh Sandman from LSE Ideas. I have a question about materiality, financial materiality. Uh, We've talked a lot about governance in principle, uh, but the second volume of the report on MDBs to the G20, which came out last week and had a big contribution from, uh, from Professor Stern here at the LSE, made the fundamental point that these institutions are way, way too small to have a material impact, however they're governed. And I wonder if the panel could comment on that.
3: Great questions. Who wants to start? It's- um, whether they're way too small to have a real impact. Um,
1: David,
4: to put you on the spot. <laughs> um, yeah, I saw. Um, I think Martin Wolf's um, uh, article on on the uh, on on the report in, in in the Financial Times, and I, I think most people would agree that. Uh, the um, multilateral development banks um, uh not uh, equipped to the challenge for the challenges that they face. See this clearly in the African uh, context. Um, and then, of course, on top of all of this, we're in the climate uh, transition. And now, by anyway, the way, um, the World Bank now has added a uh, livable planet uh, to um, its focus on, on poverty uh, and so on. So, um, you know, that too uh, presents. Uh, a challenge, but where was the? Um, you know, I think the dilemma is uh, where is the um, the, the funding uh, going to come from? Uh, and actually, what that report says is that uh, I think it says about five point four trillion is needed between um, twenty nineteen and, and twenty thirty, and that potentially two thirds of that could come from uh, developing countries themselves. When I saw that, I wondered that in the African context. Um, again, uh, if, um, you know, they you know, they, they, you know, Africa is not able to grow trade investment and so on, um, where is Africa's own contribution, uh, to the two thirds of the 5.4 trillion that the report says is needed is going to come from. So I think these are the, you know, the, um, the unanswered questions, uh, that, that are out there, but, um, but, you know, certainly in terms of what you're saying about, the materiality, the impact of um, these MDBs, uh, and, and uh, you know, certainly the challenge, I think, is out is there.
1: Did you want to add? No?
3: No. Okay, come. We'll come right back out here. Um, Professor Kathy Boone, right here. I, uh, thanks for
9: the panel. I'm Catherine Boone in Government and International Development here at LSE. So um, I just maybe start with what Nita said, so I think you were saying, well, globalization is good. It works. We just need we need to sell it and we need compensation for the losers. And I think you might have been maybe talking mostly about U.S. publics or publics in the developed world. But I would say, and I, I think this would go along with the kinds of points that David was making about the African countries is there are so many ways in which the existing international institutions that have promoted globalization have not worked for, you know, much of the global South and the, the developing countries in particular. And Raja Mohammed was saying this morning, well, you know, if we're in a world of fluid alliances and, you know, fractured hegemony and countries are sort of reaching out in new ways, I think it's really imperative that even the existing institutions be made to work more straightforwardly in the interests of, let's say, even the African countries. And we have um, an economist who used to be the research economist at head of the African Development Bank, uh, Leonce Ndikumana, who, who has made a whole career around this idea of illicit financial flows and the offshore economy and what an unbelievable ripoff it is for African countries in a way. That he, and you know, to continuously reiterate the point that the developed countries in the developed world will not police itself in enforcing its own laws and re- banking regulations and others in a way that will clean up this um, illicit economy that is so detrimental to the African countries. And, you know, another prime area is contract enforcement in the area of extractives and that multinational corporations that just wantonly plunder in, you know, countries... In, of course, not everywhere, but in Zambia and in the DRC, with you know, very difficult to bring these countries to count in the international fora. And you know, it's almost as if these rules are on the books, but nobody wants to use them in the context in which they would really tremendously benefit the African countries. So, and the the, the list could, could go on and on with ways in which these existing institutions really need to work better even implementing their own rules on the books for countries if these countries are then expected to buy in. So it's when you say, show me, it's not even show me more money or bring bring more or new. It's just, you know, implement your rules on the books in a way that will help these countries, you know, that will plug these holes that are so unbelievably detrimental to the African countries, for starters. But they're certainly not the only ones. So. I think in globalization that it's not only it works; so we need to sell it, but it, we need to clean it up.
1: Yeah. And one more question right here from the LSC student in blue. I'm making an educated guess about status.
3: <laughs> Hi. Yeah, I think this
5: adds uh, quite well to the previous question. Uh, how are you supposed to um, include African countries in this global governance, especially those that are uh, have more of an oligarchy at the top? there's also a lot of resistance to this global governance from there and yeah. thanks
1: Thank i you. think that's for more than one so i don't know who wants to go first nita let's have you go
3: first yeah. well I, I completely agree <laughs> yeah.
5: i completely agree i mean
6: the i spent my whole career focusing on how developing countries could benefit the most from globalization by having the right policies in place and then suddenly and I was accused by colleagues of being anti-globalization. And then suddenly there's a backlash in developed countries and makes you really realize
5: we need we need open markets. And of course, we need to abide by the rules of the game. And so do d- developed countries. But none of this is, there can be no, we can't move forward without it. But I mean, can I just push you on that? Like, yes. is it,
1: isn't there an argument maybe for? I mean, if you're, if Kathy's right, then maybe, you know, there needs to be another institution that we go to, to that's more nimble because there is some urgency around all these questions. You know, I mean, they, the AIIB was yeah. something that John and I heard a lot yeah. about over the last few
6: days. I mean, if anyone will tell you economic nationalism doesn't work, it's the developing countries. They tried it. Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, mean, I think Darren was asking the same question, but. Uh, Of course, but I'm saying the IMF and the World Bank are already set up to do this. They're poised to do this. This is not a heavy
5: lift for them. It is part of their infrastructure. So they could take a really critical leadership role in this.
3: David? And they have money. (laughs) Um, On
4: the question, actually, about the... um, uh, you know, African countries on the global governance and um, not buying into uh, institutions. Uh, then, you know, certainly, I think there is a problem um, at the WTO. I don't think that the um, uh, rules as um, uh, set up uh, are um, uh, helping or helpful. I should say helpful to. Um, uh, countries that are so far behind. I think that's one area where clearly I think there needs to be a, a rethink. Um, uh, and and here um, I was saying in in a conversation early on that um, uh, the US is not taking much credit for what it has done on the African growth and opportunity Act that they are which I think is uh, is is a trade deal that um, opens up the US market. Uh, to the African countries without requiring uh, reciprocity or, uh, and you know, uh, with all the supports for uh, uh, areas like um, uh, sanitary to sanitary access uh, to the US market and and, and so on. I think um, that kind of approach, uh, which is uh, we don't see elsewhere, which is unique to the uh, U.S. in opening up in 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 this way uh, certainly not um, something that has been followed in the EU context and even in the in with China there is an absence of uh, uh, any you know, sort of institutional uh, trade policy framework with the African countries so I think that sort of approach that recognises um, uh, where the um, where you know these countries are. And um, the kind of support that is that you know could help them along, I think that kind of uh, approach uh, would be helpful in the WTO context. And in order to do this, uh, the US had to get a waiver at the WTO, which um, it was able to get, uh, uh, which others uh, not uh, pursued in, in the same manner. So I think um, certainly in regard to the WTO, I think there is scope for um, uh, rethinking how the WTO responds to. Um, uh, countries that are so far behind, because clearly uh, uh, it's not
3: a level playing field for, for for everyone. Thank you. I
1: think we are actually right at the end, so I'm just going to give John, David, Anita one last chance to sort of yeah. give us a concluding oh. moment to leave happily and yeah, happily. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and the, and the Peter had said, John,
2: make sure that you offer some optimism. So <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not sure we did that uh, successfully, but. I, I would just end somewhat where Sherry did, where it seems to me that at each of the end of each of these panels, we realized that, that, that there's there's a lot of politics here uh, and that it, it exists at different levels. Uh, I think here, when we try to think about what would be the conditions for a stable world economy where it's open and, and, and accessible and profitable for countries north and south, east and west, it, it's based on lots of different uh, structures and levels and bargains. We've heard about the domestic international bargain, certainly for the old industrial societies that need to build and rebuild their their middle classes that are losing faith in globalization and openness. Uh, And uh, they need to um, uh, reconcile, uh, if you're the United States, what we might call the bargains that come from being a a hegemon. You need to uh, both do well at for your home team, so to speak, but also to continue to provide goods in an enlightened way, public goods for those uh, that are on the outside by uh, keeping the system open and relatively legitimate and rule-based. And um, the other complexity is that the core of the open world economy historically has been embedded in a security community of countries that are held together by alliances uh, that provide a extra layer flying buttresses, if you will, for openness, at least among those inside of the alliance system, but that always then uh, gets uh, put in tension with the universalism that that regional and subsystem uh, seeks to promote. So you are uh, partly trying to keep your Alliance partners together because there's China on the outside, but you're also trying to uh, appeal to the universalism of the project to to co-op or woo to I think use Mike's term the the global South. So the multiple constituencies and bargains that you have to manage, and it's all in flux now. So where could this? How can we leave this on an optimistic note? I I think relevant actors realize and uh, that that all those variables are in play and that they have to be negotiated and bargained in a new way the the ira the chips act is not a set in stone uh, set of agreements it's it's a it's an invitation to diplomacy i think <laughs> in a larger setting and so let the games begin i do think that uh, there is a stable equilibrium that may be a little bit less open than some of us might wish, but certainly not as closed as many of us uh, would fear.
4: David? I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic about anything, <laughs> uh, so to say. But um, what worries me really is uh, what I mentioned in, in, in my um, intervention, and that is the demographic issue uh, for the African countries. Um, um, actually sometimes astonished that um, it's not being seen as uh, such an urgent thing that uh, that needs to be responded to. And um, uh, if that goes wrong, um I think you're going to see uh, you know much human suffering on the African continent. Uh, if it goes well, um, I think you know yes, of course, um, we we'll could see. Uh, the kind of prosperity, inclusive shared prosperity that we've been talking about. But um, the demographic issue is really something that worries me.
5: Thank you. Nita. Uh, my ending note of optimism is the diversity in this room. I mean, we're having a conversation with students, uh, faculty from different disciplines, practitioners, international organization representatives. Um, some of the top scholars in our field, and uh, we just need to bring in the general public. And I think there's a consensus here amongst all this diversity that we need globalization and shared prosperity. So that's my note of optimism. Thank you. Peter?
10: So all good things come to an end. Um, And I'm afraid we've we've reached the Including moment of the conference, uh, this was a, you know, this was a great way to end. And I, John, I appreciate the optimism um, really across the board here um, uh, at the end. Uh, we have, uh, I, I, I know where we are because I've been following out of one of my eyes, uh, Jorge's uh, visualization of the conference, and he is wrapping up the last panel there. Um, um, which is terrific. And this is, I think this is the first of three summaries of the conference. So we've got this visual here. There's been a videographer. There he is over there. I know that there's going to be some kind of a film, a video of this. And there's also going to be a written uh, summary of um, the deliberations here. I think we did more than scratch the surface. We're going to try to represent it as faithfully um, as as possible. Um, I see this conference as not a kind of one-off, um, but rather as part of a longer-term uh, commitment to do our part at LSE, um, to move the debate over markets and society. Um, Forward, I was really encouraged. I met with Larry Kramer earlier today before the conference, uh, and then listening to his comments as well, that um, he really sees this space as an important um, place for the LSE to lead on and to lead in partnership with other universities in London and beyond, um, collaboration across. uh, the pond, uh, but to deepen, I think the collaboration between LSE and other institutions, uh, in the UK and, and in Europe, which is terrific. And I think is music to a lot of people's uh, ears, um, at, at, at the LSE. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming out. It's raining again, um, to participate in the conference. Um, I encourage you to just kind of follow us in both the physical and our digital space on these issues. I do want to say special thanks to, um, I don't see him right now, but to John Phelan. Um, The U.S. Center at LSE would not be what it is, and it would not be able to do this kind of thing without uh, his engagement and his generosity. Um, and I think LSC is very lucky to have people like John um, connected to it. Um, I also need to thank where is Eddie, Eddie Ola, Akande Pierre Noel and her team. So I mean, there was so much, and I was I was so pleased to hear people refer to it. There was so much planning. Um, and care that went into um to organizing this this conference, and it wouldn't have been half of what it is with without them. and finally, I want to thank all of our wonderful speakers and chairs. Um, they've done so much to I think enlighten us today and last night um and to help move the discussion forward on this critical issue. So please join me in thanking all of them.